Let me start by saying that the Mexican Revolution was one of the greatest, most important events of the 20th century. Just as in other countries, it took several centuries and many waves of revolution to really chip away at the backbone of the old property relations, at the feudal relations. The history of Mexico of the last 200 years is basically one revolution after another, one bourgeois democratic revolution after another that continued expanding capitalism and ultimately strengthening the grave diggers of capitalism, the working class. America will never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. All the way from the War of Independence from Spain, which started in 1810, to the Liberal Reforma under Benito Juarez, to the, the different waves of, uh, of, of this revolution that we're going to be talking about today, you, you see this process taking place. And, and Mexican history has been uh, violent, it's been convulsive, it's been a series of wars, of, of revolutions, of counter-revolutions, uh, of, uh, of economic booms and of economic slumps, uh, and of imperialist invasions uh, time and time again. This is one of the first revolutions of the 20th century, one of the earliest ones after 1905, of course, in Russia. And although uh, it went on for about 10 years, uh, it was one of the longest and the bloodiest of, uh, of that century. Uh, and some people could argue that the revolution actually continued all the way up until about 1940. It went on for, for really decades of uh, instability and chaos in that country. Now, there's some people that argue that it wasn't really a revolution at all, uh, because superficially, at least, there, you know, a lot of things remain the same in terms of, of uh, the property relations. But for our yardstick uh, of revolution, we, we refer to Trotsky. And Trotsky, in his, of course, his fantastic history of the Russian Revolution, he says that, quote, the most indubitable feature of a revolution is the direct interference of the masses in historical events. And in the autumn of 1910, that is exactly what happened. Centuries of semi-colonial and colonial slavery and oppression uh, finally uh, exploded to the surface. Uh, there was divisions at the top and the masses stormed through the breach to try to put their stamp on history and to try to seize their own destinies. In State and Revolution, Lenin characterizes what he called, quote, a real people's revolution as one in which, quote, the mass of the people, their majority, the very lowest social groups crushed by oppression and exploitation rise independently and stamp the entire course of the revolution uh, with the imprint of their own demands. Their attempt to build in their own way a new society in place of the old society that is being uh, destroyed. So time and again, you see the masses enter the stage of history, and then the ruling class is trying to figure out what to do with all of this. Uh, and there's no doubt that the Mexican Revolution represented an elemental awakening of all the layers of society, particularly the peasantry, particularly the indigenous population, uh, and to some important extent also the urban working class. <clears throat> but of course, without a clear working class leadership, as we'll see through the course of uh, this discussion, uh, all of that energy ends up being dissipated 
uh, and you don't have the completion, even of the basic tasks of the bourgeois uh, national democratic uh, revolution. And what makes the Mexican revolution complicated is, is not only you know, all these unfamiliar names and people and, and places, but the fact that, that on two different occasions, the interests of the masses coincide with the interests of at least one sector of the ruling class. And of course, both times those interests diverge and th those forces enter into conflict with each other. Both times, of course, the, the masses are betrayed by their erstwhile liberal allies. Uh, and, uh, you know, th these are exactly the same so-called progressive bourgeois that people nowadays still have illusions in. Uh, these people, they weren't progressive 100 years ago, and they sure as hell aren't progressive uh, 100 years later today. So we have to look not only at what happened at the surface, you know, the, the great men of history, uh, the changes in the political uh, superstructure, but really want to look at what happens in a revolution in relation to property and economic uh, relations. And although uh, the basis for capitalism had already been pretty well established in Mexico during the Porfiriato, the reign of Porfirio Diaz, which we'll talk about now, the revolution really consolidated the rule of the bourgeois, and it's the foundry, like the American Civil War, I would say, in which modern uh, Mexico uh, was, was forged. Uh, now, all revolutionary wars, all civil wars are ultimately, in some form or another, class wars. And the Mexican Revolution, it was a multi-sided civil war. It was a war between classes. It was a war uh, within classes, an intra and inter-class war. And of course, it was accompanied uh, by counter-revolution. You can't have revolution without counter-revolution. And it unfolded in four main phases, but the, the different alliances, the different personalities, all of that is really blurred and kind of confusing. Um, and yet, of course, with a, a historical materialist analysis, we can make sense of this. We can understand the arc of the revolution. We can understand uh, who these different people represented in terms of, uh, of their class relations. Now, in order to understand what happened, we have to understand uh, Trotsky's theory of the permanent revolution. This took place at a time, of course, when the capitalist class in most countries, uh, certainly by that time, had already arrived too late on the stage of history to play a historically progressive role. They were too tied up with imperialism. They were too tied up with landlordism. The landlords were the capitalists. The capitalists were the landlords. Uh, and of course, you had massive injection of, uh, of foreign capital there uh, for them to, to, to seriously carry through the national democracy democratic tasks, the main ones of which are expropriating the landlords and dividing up the land to the peasantry, uniting the nation on a serious basis. To this day, Mexico is fractured and the state doesn't even control all, all parts of the country, and expelling imperialism. Now, uh, on the other hand, though the working class was relatively embryonic in Mexico, and the main problem it has had was the question of its, of its leadership. Uh, the Mexican Revolution is also a really fantastic example of the Marxist theory of the state, the idea that in the final analysis, all serious class questions are going to be resolved uh, by a clash of, 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 of classes, uh, usually with arms in hand. Now, it was a, a belated bourgeois democratic revolution, and the question of the land was at the center of this thing. But what really drove the, the thing forward was the what you could call the plebeian left wing of, of the masses, of the peasantry in particular. Um, and th these people, like the levelers in England, or the hébertistes in France, or the Shazites in the American Revolution, they wanted to push beyond uh, beyond not only what the economic foundations allowed objectively, but beyond, of course, what the liberal uh, bourgeois leadership wanted to, wanted to do. But I do believe 
that there was potential, had there been a Bolshevik party in place in Mexico, for it to have, you know, for, for a proletarian revolution to have developed on the backs of this, uh, this agrarian revolution because it went so long, because it dislocated the old state, because it, you know, it smashed the old apparatus, it smashed the old uh, basic property relations between the exploited and the oppressed. But again, you didn't have that. Because in Mexico, it was a little bit more urbanized than Russia. It's obviously a little more compact country than Russia. It had greater penetration of railroads, which was you know, an, a, an important indicator of, uh, of development and of the penetration of, of capitalism at that time. Uh, in some of the regions taken by Villa and Zapata, there's uh, Pancho Villa. Uh, there were some real inroads made against private property. In Morelos in the south, uh, they actually set up a commune uh, and, and basically had sort of autonomous uh, peasant government, which lasted for several years during the revolution, way longer than the Paris commune and longer than anything uh, we'd seen on, on, on earth before, before the Russian revolution. Um, and the División del Norte, uh, Villa's troops, they, they use tactics sometimes very similar to Trotsky's Red Army. They use trains to, to concentrate troops and, and move around. Uh, they, they use political agitation. They expropriated the landlords in the areas that they liberated. Uh, and of course, unfortunately, that wasn't uh, extended to the whole of the country. Um, but the, the ruling class succeeded largely in keeping the peasantry and the workers divided. And the leadership of the working class, unfortunately, fell into that trap and actually supported uh, the counter-revolution at a certain stage. Now, there's no time to go all the way back to uh, the, the the conquest and uh, you know all the amazing stuff that happened, all the class struggle that happened in the you know 300 years or so before this. So we're going to start with the Porfiriato, which is the rule of Jose de la Cruz Porfirio Diaz Mori, who was uh, the guy who the Porfiriato is named after. Now he was a liberal. He started out as a liberal reformer. He was a supporter of Benito Juarez, who was uh, one of the main bourgeois liberal reformers in the in the mid 1800s. Um, he had fought against the French invasion. The French imperialists invaded in the in the mid early 1860s. Uh, he led a famous cavalry charge at the at the Battle of Puebla, which took place on the 5th of May. Uh, and that was the, that's where Cinco de Mayo comes from. Cinco de Mayo, which people celebrate here, has nothing to do with, with, in, with independence or with the revolution. It was a battle against French imperialism, actually. Uh, and then, uh, but uh, um, Diaz ended up turning against Juarez. He ran against him several times uh, as president. He, uh, he staged a failed coup against him. And eventually, he ended up taking over de facto after Juarez died. Uh, he took over in 72, 1872 and was formally elected in 1876. Uh, he ended up being a dictator of Mexico for 35 years. Uh, you know, we've lived through less than two years of Trump. Uh, and what that's like, imagine what 35 years of someone you know, like that. Obviously, it was a little bit different class relations, uh, but uh, imagine that, 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 what that would mean in a country like Mexico to live under that thing. Uh, he was known as the Iron Man of the Americas. He was a strong man. He ruled from above. His motto was order followed by progress, uh, which is a very common motto against uh, among these types. Uh, and he ruled with a, a group of people called the Scientificos, the scientific ones who were kind of uh, like technocrats, uh, who, were, who were supposedly going to use rational uh, you know, means to have efficient government and, and develop the country um, and so on. But he had nothing to do with classical liberal political reforms. He stifled all dissent. There was no room for, for anybody to, to say anything against him. Uh, and be, because of his brutal methods, in fact, he was able to do a, a good job from a capitalist perspective of really developing uh, the country. But of course, they required a lot of foreign capital to do that. And that meant that there was the encroachment of American imperialism, French, British, and so on. And he was very worried about that. And he, he's credited with, with this famous saying, pobre México tan lejos de Dios tan 
tan cerca de los Estados Unidos, which means poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. Um, but of course, what he meant by that was that it was hard to get out from under the shadow of U.S. imperialism and the weight of U.S. capital in order to develop independently. Um, so uh, foreign capital flooded, especially in the railroads, uh, and a lot of it was just resource extraction, as is often the case. Uh, the railroads went to the coast. Uh, there was timber. There was mining. There was agriculture. Some of the railroads went directly into the United States to deliver, uh, to deliver those goods. Uh, the landed estates, which are known as haciendas, they, they grew dramatically. They were huge. Uh, they were massive. Uh, you know, the government uh, used its force to enclose communal lands of the peasantry, uh, and it was mostly going to, in, into the hands of oligarchs that were connected with Diaz himself. There was one family, the Terrazas, who had an estate in Sonora that uh, was one million acres by the, by the end of this. Um, so all these peasants, they were being displaced either by poverty or by force, uh, and they basically, a lot of them had to become wage workers on their own land, sometimes just for room and board, uh, and you end up with a, a situation where by the time the revolution breaks out, 95% of the land was in the hands of just 5% of the population. The ordinary, the, the, the peones, they were basically serfs, uh, essentially in all but name. Legally, they were free, but there is a, the system of debt bondage of company stores where, and it was bonded, debt bondage in perpetuity, as you say today in places like India and Pakistan, where, where um, you know, if you have a debt, your kids inherit your debt. So there's no way you can ever get out from under this thing because you will never earn enough wages uh, for your labor to, to do that. And the Asindalos, they ruled as dictators on their own land. There was no right to strike. Uh, and then, uh, you know, DS. He relied on these people called the, the, the rurales, the rural police. And they're basically a paramilitary force, thugs, uh, a lot of them, you know, ex-criminals, a lot of them, you know, people that were told to do this, if, you know, if, or else go to prison. Um, and it was a reign of terror against, uh, against the peasantry. If there was someone that got out of line, if someone was disrespectful to their master, anything like that, they could end up you know, hanging by the side of the road or by a cross uh, or kidnapped and sent to the army or sent to work in the plantations in Yucatan or, 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 or stuff like that. So it was, it was, it was rule, uh, iron rule, uh, keeping the peace through brute force. You have, of course, the weight of the Catholic Church and, of course, just the, the inertia of centuries of, 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 of submission, uh, despite constant peasant rebellions that took place over this period. Now, the population grew from 9 million to 15 million during the course of Diaz's rule. The value of exports uh, grew by six times, and the foreign debt by the US was paid off. And yet, none of this trickled down at all. I think this is a pretty shocking statistic. By 1910, when the revolution started, life expectancy in Mexico was 28 years of age. How many of you would be dead or just about uh, already at that time? And this, this is the desperate situation that these people were in. Um, of course, along with the economy, the working class also developed, <clears throat> but unfortunately, they developed largely along, along reformist anarchist lines. You had a thing called the Casa Obrero Mundial, the World Workers' House, which emerged, um, but they had a very sectarian attitude towards the, towards the revolutionary peasantry, as we'll see. But you also had the rise of people like the, the Flores Magón brothers, uh, Ricardo and Enrique. They were really exceptional revolutionary democratic journalists. They were hardcore anarchists. They were like, you know, inspired by Proudhon and Bakunin. They had read some Marx and stuff. Uh, they, 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 you know, they, they had some, some very good elements to them. Uh, they were focused on the working class. They had very advanced social demands. 
Um, they were organized with the Wobblies, with the IWW, at a certain point. Um, and they launched a very important newspaper called Regeneración, Regeneration, in 1900, which they used to agitate against uh, the DS regime. And uh, it is said that Ricardo Magón was the first one in Mexico to use the phrase Tierra y Libertad, land and freedom, the phrase of the Narodniks, uh, which of course was then taken up later on by Zapata. Um, unfortunately, despite the fact that they, they tried to organize a party, they tried to have a newspaper that could coordinate all of this, they, 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 they were basically anarchists and they ended up cutting themselves off from, from, the, from, from the movement. There were some big major uh, uh, labor struggles in the Porfiriato. There was a strike in Cananea where the American, the Texas and New Mexico Rangers came in to help the Rurales and the Federal Army uh, you know, shoot Mexican workers. Um, and uh, Diaz basically had, had said that he would have only one term, but they kept changing the rules, kept changing the constitution uh, so that he could rule over and over. Uh, and he ruled, I think he was elected, quote unquote, about seven different times. Um, and his, his, his theory was that Mexicans were basically children and they needed uh, you know, a, a firm guiding hand uh, to lead them. Now, in 1908, he gave an interview to an American magazine called Pearson's Magazine uh, with a journalist called James Creelman, and this is the famous Creelman interview where Diaz admitted that he was getting old and careless and that he would begin a transition to democratic elections because someone younger should take over. So expectations, finally, there's going to be a change uh, take place. Um, because, of course, he may have done a lot to establish capitalist foundations, but the, the rising bourgeois, they wanted more say in the direction of the country. They wanted more power to equate their rising economic power. Uh, and this is where Francisco Madero uh, comes in, Francisco Ignacio Madero. He was a big landowner and a petty industrialist from the northern state of Coahuila. Uh, he was one from one of the richest families in Mexico, very modern family, very liberal family. These are people that had been trained in Europe, uh, gone to school in Europe. Some of them even had you know, sort of confused socialist ideas. Uh, in the case of Diaz, he also believed himself to be a spiritualist and a medium, and he communicated uh, with the spirit of Benito Juarez, who told him that he had to, to free Mexican people uh, spiritually, and that meant, of course, bourgeois liberal democracy. So in 1909, he writes a book called The Presidential Succession of 1910, uh, where he starts talking about what are we going to do once uh, Diaz is out of power. <clears throat> he started getting more popular. He organized an anti-reelectionist party. Uh, and it was a pretty mild set of reforms. I mean, it wasn't very threatening at all. And, and Diaz actually wasn't threatened. Uh, and in the end, he decided that, no, I, I better run again because these people are still children. I, I, still need to, I still need to run the show. Uh, but Madero filled a vacuum. There were expectations of change. And Madero said he was going to bring some change. It was clear then that he would, he would win in open elections and that Diaz wouldn't be able to rig the fraud as he had in the past. Um, so he had uh, Madero arrested in the city of San Luis Potosí uh, because if you're in jail, you can't be elected president. So uh, Diaz is elected again, uh, and Madero, who believed naively that a peaceful constitutional solution was possible, uh, you, know, it, you know, even he understood that only an armed uprising was going to get rid of this guy. Uh, and with the normal legislative channels blocked, the masses also had nowhere else, uh, nowhere else to look. Madero escaped from prison and he set up camp in San Antonio, Texas, and he announced uh, something called the Plan of San Luis Potosí. It's a very modest program of liberal reforms, but it did promise the return of the ancestral lands that had been stolen from the peasantry, and it set a date for the insurrection. We actually, we joke a lot about, oh, you can't, you can't set the date for the insurrection uh, in advance, you can't predict that. But he actually did. Uh, Sunday, November 20th, 1910, at 6 p.m., was the beginning <laughs> of the Mexican Revolution. So 
all expectations were on for, for this showdown. And all of this takes us up to, finally, the beginning of the revolution. Um, the class character of, of, of this first stage, and there's four main stages, like I said, is basically as follows. It was a fight between the conservative and the liberal wings of the, did I miss a slide? No, I don't think so. It was, a, it was a fight between the conservative and the liberal wings of the bourgeois, and the liberals leaned on the masses, using the question of land to mobilize them to fight in their interests against Diaz. As far as the masses are concerned, they didn't care so much about the re-election of Diaz or not. They wanted the question of the land figured out, and that, that's why they rose up all around the country. Now, at first, there wasn't much of an uprising. There was a few, uh, you know, in some cities, some uprisings, some fighting. Uh, before November 20th, they, they, they couldn't wait. They jumped the gun. Uh, but even on November 20th, uh, even though that is the day that is now celebrated as the Mexican Revolution, not Cinco de Mayo, like I said, uh, there wasn't much of an echo, especially in the rural area, I mean, in the urban areas and, and the, amongst the, the working class, there, there wasn't much going on. But little by little, the peasant uprisings started picking up all around, uh, all around the country. And like I said, for, for Madero, things were kind of abstract a little bit, whereas for the masses, it's very concrete. Like, we want the land. That's the question. Um, there was an anarchist commune set up in Baja California by, by Ricardo Magón, by, by the Magón brothers. Uh, and of course, then, the two most important revolutionary leaders to emerge in this, uh, in, this, uh, in this period were Emiliano Zapata in the south and José Doroteo Arango Arambula in the north. Have you guys heard of uh, that last guy? No? Okay, well that's Francisco Pancho Villa, known also as El Centauro del Norte, the centaur of the North. Uh, and he was one of the most colorful and larger than life, uh, real natural leaders of the oppressed that, that the world has ever seen. Uh, as a youth, I mean, his, his life story is, is, is really incredible. Uh, as a youth, he had to escape from the state of Durango, where he was from, uh, and he went to, uh, to the neighboring state of Chihuahua. Uh, there's a lot of stories about why that happened. Some say that his, his sister was raped or she was assaulted or that she killed herself because uh, an, an hacendado or one of his thugs, uh, you know, uh, you know a, a, attacked her. And then at 16 years of age, Villa hunted this guy down and killed him. And then he had to, he had to escape. He changed his name to Pancho Villa. Uh, and he led kind of a double life. He would, you know, during day, he was a, a, a above board uh, sort of cattle uh, ran, you know, he would help with, you know, rich people like move their cattle around a grazing country. And at night, you know, he was a, he was a, you know, a, a, a bandido basically, uh, you know, and a cattle rustler stealing cattle from sometimes from the same people. Um, uh, but he was eventually convinced by a liberal local landowner that he should join his little band of people in the fight against uh, uh, Porfirio Diaz. Uh, and he, his natural ability, his intelligence, his skill, eventually he rose through the ranks and they ended up becoming one of the leaders of the, of the greatest armies. In fact, I would say the greatest revolutionary army perhaps that Latin America has ever seen. Uh, he was a peasant's peasant, if you will. I mean, he was, he was uh, you, know, the, you know, as peasant as you can be. He was an expert horseman. That's why they called him a centaur because he, he was almost like welded uh, to his horse. He was barely literate. Uh, he was a teetotaler. He didn't drink. Uh, a lot of people have this caricature of this tequila swilling guy, but actually, apparently, he would smash cantinas in a lot of the places he would he would go, and he didn't want his troops to, to drink. His favorite drink was a strawberry milkshake. That was his favorite thing, uh, and he liked to go to the elite confectionery in El Paso, Texas, to get one. Unfortunately, that's gone now, so you can't go get a milkshake. Um, 
But the main thing is he had a deep connection with the masses, with the poorest layers. And although he had virtually no military experience, he was, he was a tactical and strategic genius. Uh, and instead of guerrilla tactics, which were what most of the, the peasants used, he actually used more classical combined arms engagements directly with the Mexican army. Uh, he never had a really cleared out, clearly spelled out program like Zapata, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But in leading that army, uh, he, was, he, was a, he was a revolutionary of action. I mean, everywhere they went, this División del Norte, the Division of the North, they, they smashed the political and economic apparatus of the Hacendados. They would expropriate the land. Uh, in many areas, they would leave workers behind to run the mines, to run the factories, to generate resources in order to fund uh, the revolutionary army. He exacted tribute on... Uh, on different people. Um, and uh, that, of course, freed up then his military forces to range more. A lot of the other guerrilla-type armies, they were tied to their local areas by, by the agricultural cycle, largely. They didn't have sort of independent means uh, to really range around the country. And at its height, uh, this División del Norte, the Division of the North, was about 50,000 uh, troops. <clears throat> uh, in, uh, in 19, uh, yeah, 1916, the U.S. invaded Mexico in order to stabilize the country, uh, and Villa called for the expropriation and nationalization of all foreign-owned assets, milling, timber, railroads, which was a ton of stuff, uh, you know, be, uh, to, to fight against imperialism. Uh, he also understood the power of propaganda and film, uh, and how those things, which were pretty new at that time, could educate a largely uh, illiterate population. In January 1914, he signed an exclusive contract with a film company to film him uh, in exchange of 20% of the profits so he could use that to buy uh, ammunition uh, for his armies. And in, in one major battle, he actually staged it during the day and told the film crews what the tactics were going to be so that they could get a good shot, you know. Uh, and he still ended up smashing uh, the federales who, who had to run away and escape across the border into into the United States. And then there's lots of other films, uh, you know, starring Pancho Villa as Pancho Villa. I mean, he, he was, he, he used this, uh, you know, to great effect. Um, and they're really amusing stuff. You can find a lot of this stuff on YouTube. Next up, though, we have Emiliano Zapata, very different character uh, than Villa, but none, nonetheless, a peasant's peasant. This guy's from the south of Mexico, uh, a different kind of uh, cultural, different kind of a people, if you will. Uh, but he also was a real giant of a, of a human. Uh, he was from Morelos, which is a southern state that's right south of Mexico City. Uh, at that time, it was the third largest producer of sugar in the world. Obviously, a very important uh, commodity. And due to the links to the to world uh, capitalism, uh, they had actually had pretty advanced investment in refineries and stuff like that to process the sugar, so they could you know get more of the profit instead of just exporting uh, the raw materials. And that, of course, meant that they needed more land to grow more sugar, and they needed to free up labor in order to, uh, uh, in order to have people to work these places. So Zapata was a peasant, but he wasn't dirt poor. He had a little bit of land, he had a little bit of uh, cattle, uh, and he, he, was a, he was a trader uh, in the sense that he, you know, he, he took his goods from place to place, so he knew a lot of people, and uh, he was known for, his, for his, his skill with horses, for his integrity, for his honesty. Um, and in September 1909, at the age of 30, he was elected basically uh, the, the, a sort of a local leader by the elders in the fight to defend the lands against uh, the Hacendados. Uh, he studied all sorts of legal procedures, he looked at the documents of land tenure and stuff, and he came to the conclusion that the only way forward was going to be armed struggle to, to actually defend the lands. All he wanted was the peasants to be left in peace, to, 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 you know, to sow and, and, uh, and harvest from their ancestral lands. Um, <clears throat> but obviously that wasn't going to happen, so he adopted the slogan, Land and Freedom, and Abajo Haciendas Viva Pueblos, which is down with the Haciendas, 
Long live the people. Um, uh, so when Morelos finally joined the uprising against Diaz, it was natural that Zapata was named the key leader, uh, the supreme revolutionary leader of the South. And now he was uh, in a very strategic location, very close to a lot of the transportation networks that go into Mexico City. He, he was known as El Caudillo del Sur, you know, the sort of the, the big strong man of the South, or even the Attila of the South, because he had these, you know, hordes of, of, uh, of armies. And his army, the... Uh, the, the Liberation Army of the South numbered about 30,000 people at its height. He very famously said, I think we even have a sticker that says, uh, it's better to, to, to die on your feet than to live on your knees. Uh, he also said, uh, those who want to be eagles should fly like eagles. Those who want to be worms should drag themselves on the ground, but shouldn't cry out when they get stepped on, uh, which is a, a colorful way of saying basically the same thing. Uh, he had more of a defensive tactics than Villa, um, uh, so a little less advanced in some ways, but in other ways, more advanced. He developed uh, quite a radical program. And when they heard about the Russian Revolution, they, he said, we should do like the Russians do. We should do like the Russians are doing. Uh, and he also warned against, uh, against uh, uh, being divided by the bourgeois, the workers and the peasants. He said that this was a danger that could happen if they didn't unite to fight against their common enemy. <clears throat> so for several months then, the fighting against Diaz's forces takes place. And then uh, eventually you have the fall of Ciudad Juarez, which is a major city in north. It's right across from El Paso, uh, Texas. Pancho Villa takes the city, even though Madero had told him not to take the city. But that military engagement basically broke uh, the back of the Diaz uh, regime. Uh, he ends up deciding, he abdicates, he runs away to France. And Francisco Madero is now <clears throat> the president of Mexico. So now we start with the second phase of the revolution, where uh, basically the, the fighting between the bourgeois factions moves more to the political plane, but the masses aren't yet ready to go home, and so there's fighting now between the bourgeois forces and the masses. Um, so as far as Madero was concerned, the revolution's over. He would just take over from Diaz, and he would launch a, a new Mexico, but not too new, uh, a, a, a period of nice liberal peace. Uh, because, of course, as a defender of capitalist private property, and that includes capitalist private property of land, so he wasn't about to resolve the land question, which was a direct betrayal of what he said he was going to do. The last thing he wanted to do was to deepen the revolution. He was in favor of a political revolution at the top, but not of a social revolution from below. But of course, the masses had other ideas. Um, he basically took over the old state apparatus ready-made. He kept the 1857 constitution. He kept 90% of the porfirista bureaucracy, including the military uh, bureaucracy. And he was mercil mercilessly attacked by the old regime, by the media, the, the political cartoons against him are particularly uh, vicious <coughs> from that time. Uh, the hacendados were complaining to him because the peasants weren't listening anymore like they used to. They weren't going back to work. Uh, and then people like Zapata were complaining to him saying, look, you have the power. Why don't you sign a decree and give us our land back? And he's like, oh, no, I can't do that. I can't be a dictator from above. Uh, I can't just issue a decree. But of course, that's exactly what the Bolsheviks did. They issued a decree on day one of the revolution, giving the land to the peasantry and urged the peasants to take the land themselves. But of course, Madero wasn't going to do that. That's the difference between a bourgeois democratic regime and uh, a proletarian revolutionary uh, regime. Um, so he was kind of a Kerensky type figure, Madero. He was trying to balance in a, in a, in a, in a you know, in a mildly Bonapartist way between the classes, trying to satisfy anybody, tried to make half a revolution essentially, but of course we know time and again what happens to these people. Uh, you know, they go halfway across the road and they get squashed. Um, he couldn't meet any of the demands of the bourgeois, uh, which was to re return to order, 
and he couldn't meet the demands of the peasants. Um, so he may have had uh, very good intentions, but uh, but that didn't that wasn't good enough. Obviously, there was only two options, as in Russia at that time. There wasn't going to be a nice, pretty liberal democracy, uh, a bourgeois democracy. You were either going to have uh, a coup or many coups, as we end up having, and a, and a dictatorship, a uh, military dictatorship, or you're going to have the deep end of the revolution, and ultimately you, it would have had to develop into a proletarian revolution. Um, and so what happened is a series of Bonapartist politicians and generals, one after another, try to pacify the masses. <clears throat> so a new series of uprisings uh, takes place. Uh, Madero now sends troops to try to crush Zapata, who had helped bring him to power in the first place. And this is when Zapata goes up into the mountains uh, and, and develops what's called the Plan de Ayala, which is a very famous document in Mexico. Basically said that there's too much wealth concentrated in too few hands. He wants land for those who work it, a return of the communal lands to the rightful owners, the breaking up of the haciendas, for the nationalization of lands and factories without compensation of anybody who opposes this program, and for the masses to defend this program with arms in hand. That's pretty pretty bold. Um, and so, so now you've got Villa rises up again in the, in the north against Madero, along with this guy named Pascual Orozco, and then and, uh, Zapata's uh, harassing uh, Madero from the south. Now, like I said, Madero had left in place most of the generals of the old regime, uh, and a conspiracy is hatched inevitably in the in the general staff that we got to get rid of this guy. And uh, there's a coup then takes place <clears throat> in Mexico City. It's called La Decena Tragica, the, the 10 tragic days. Uh, and there's hundreds of people killed in, in this coup. It's a military coup against Madero. And Madero, though, he sends his top general, Huerta, General Huerta, to, to go stop this coup. Of course, on the way to stopping the coup, Huerta, who was known as the Jackal, and take a look at this, this guy, I mean, this guy, <laughs> do you, try, would you trust that guy? On the way, he, he goes and has a meeting with the U.S. Ambassador Henry Lane Wilson, uh, who says, you know what, uh, don't support Madero, go with the coup. And so he goes along with the coup, and they end up arresting Madero and his uh, Vice President Pino Suarez. Um, of course, these guys, they're, 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 they're shot while trying to escape. Uh, and Madero's head was literally cut off. They literally chopped this guy's head off. I mean, uh, and of course, we have now a new Porfirio Diaz, everybody thinks, a new military dictator, Huerta, uh, who is celebrated by the bourgeois press as a bringer of, uh, you know, law and order once again. Uh, and of course, we've seen how many people like, I mean, you know, it makes you think of someone like Salvador Allende, who, you know, trusts the wrong general, who tries to go halfway, who doesn't lean on the masses and instead has illusions in, in, in bourgeois constitutionality in the abstract. So now we have a new dictator and the third main phase uh, of the revolution, where once again, uh, the, 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 the interests of the bourgeois uh, of one layer of the bourgeois and of the masses kind of coincides to fight against uh, this dictator. And once again, the bourgeois liberals promise the question of land to the masses to get them to fight against uh, the new dictator. So this time around, it takes the form of Huerta's Federals, he is now in charge of the Federal Army, uh, and Venustiano Carranza's constitutionalists. Venustiano Carranza was another liberal landowner from the state of Coahuila, just like uh, Madero, but he was a little bit more Bonapartist, <laughs> a little less naive, uh, and uh, and he understood that if he was going to win in the power struggle, there's all these armies fighting now. You got Zapata in the south, you got V in the north, and he decides he's obviously got to put together his own forces to have a base of power when they eventually take out uh, Huerta. 
Huerta, of course, tries to consolidate his rule. He, he like super expands uh, the army. And you end up with an even bloodier conflagration, a bigger conflagration than ever. Uh, the División del Norte, properly speaking, uh, uh, emerges in the north. And so it's a military struggle against Huerta, but also in the case of Villa and Zapata's armies, it's a, it's a social struggle against the foundations of, uh, of the old regime. Um, <clears throat> so Carranza issues what's called the Plan de Guadalupe, which is again, a little, little pretty modest uh, you know, liberal thing, you know, respect the, the 1857 constitution, no more dictators, blah, blah, blah. And so these people are called the constitutionalists. So eventually, Huerta's forces, I mean, you can't rule by force uh, and by terror uh, you know, indefinitely. They start getting worn down. Uh, eventually, um, Villa again takes another city against the, the orders of, of his superiors. He takes the city of Zacatecas, uh, and that opens the way to the fall of Mexico City. And then now we're going to have, uh, you know, uh, to figure out who's going to take over when we get in there. But the tensions are building. You've got these armies in the north, which are comprised of two bourgeois armies, and then you got Villa's army, and they're fighting against the same enemy, but they have different class interests. And Carranza does not want Villa to be the first to bring his troops into Mexico City. Um, so they have a, a treaty, a treaty of Torreón, where they agree after the revolution, we'll have a meeting of 150 top generals and they'll figure out which, uh, you know, what, what to do with the country. Um, uh, so Huerta ends up uh, abdicating and he goes away. So now you have the defeat of, uh, of this new dictator. And that now begins the next phase of the revolution, where once again, the interests of the masses and the interests of the, of the ruling class are, are divided. Uh, the bourgeois liberals are going to, they think Carranza is going to organize a nice uh, new regime. And the masses, again, are supposed to go home and put down their arms. How many of you think that that's what happened? <clears throat> not not going to happen. Because, um, of course, they weren't going to solve the land question. And the masses knew that they would have to try to solve this on their own. Now, as agreed at the Treaty uh, of Torreón, they, they had a, a, a convention. It was going to be held in Mexico City, uh, but Zapata didn't trust Carranza. He didn't want to go into Mexico City. That was an enemy stronghold as far as he was concerned. So they moved to the city of Aguascalientes, the convention of Aguascalientes. Zapata still says, look, <clears throat> I don't trust Carranza. Carranza will participate if you resign. And, and Carranza says, okay, I'll resign, but you and Villa both have to resign and leave the country. Like, and, like, and of course, none of them resigned. None of them left the country. Uh, so in this tense atmosphere, you end up having this convention of Aguascalientes. And of course, guess what happens? The interests of the Villistas and the Zapata people they actually call us around Zapata's Plan de Ayala, the radical program, as opposed to Carranza's Plan de Guadalupe. And so Carranza and his main general, Obregón, they lose control of their own convention and they have to flee again. They have to flee and they run off to Veracruz. So now you have the way, the, the way open to Mexico City and you have the arrival of Villa and Zapata and their respective armies to Mexico City in December 1914. Zapata comes up from the south, Villa from the north, and they enter Mexico City. They're received like you know, heroes by everybody. Um, and uh, they met finally in the presidential palace on December 4th. Villa is sitting in the presidential chair there. And apparently Zapata said, you should just take the power. You should be the president. And Zapata says, well, well you know, I actually prefer my military camps to all this luxury and, and comfort. Uh, but you had a situation where the old state apparatus is completely suspended. It's like the Paris Commune. They've run off to Versailles. They've run off to Veracruz. Uh, the armed bodies of men, of the, con of the conventionists, uh, of uh, Villa and Zapata, they're the ones who have the force uh, in society. It's a classic example of dual power, but they didn't know what to do with it.
Villa and Zapata, they weren't personally ambitious, apparently, even though Villa had quite, a, quite, a, quite an ego. Uh, they knew how to defeat militarily and how to make a mockery of the old regime, but they didn't have a program or a plan to, to, to organize something. They were guided by revolutionary instinct, by their connection with the masses. Uh, and even though they had the Plan de Ayala, they didn't really have a, a, a national plan for government. And unfortunately, the labor leaders were completely clueless about what to do either. They kind of stood on the sidelines. What happened is that when the Madero movement broke out earlier on, Madero, a bourgeois, liberal, and the masses supporting them, the, the Magonistas and the other anarchists, they, they said, oh, they're all, they're, they have illusions in Madero. We have nothing to do with them. You know, they lumped them all in together. They couldn't separate the, the elemental forces of the mass revolutionary peasantry from the, the bourgeois liberal. So they wrote them all off completely. And there was actually some armed clashes between uh, workers' organizations and the uh, and the and the, the Villa armies, which really you know divided them. And so they they had no, no you know didn't know what to do. Of course, this is before the Russian Revolution had taken place, so nobody had seen an example of what might be possible under these kinds of circumstances. So Zapata goes back to Morelos and Villa goes back to, to, to Chihuahua. I mean, it's, it's like a tragic, it's like a tragedy. It's like a Greek tragedy. I mean, it's the biggest mistake, a fatal mistake. Uh, ultimately, they had power in their hands, but they didn't know uh, what to do with it. And the fighting went on for another six years, but that is basically the high watermark of a uh, of uh, th this picture is <laughs> the high watermark of that revolution. Um, these two outlaw peasants, you know, had been outside the law, were raised to the pinnacle of the revolution by millions of other uh, uh, you know, revolutionary peasants, but without, you know, being part of a class that had a really solid perspective for a new kind of power, they were left drifting and isolated, and eventually they were decimated. Uh, and I think you could make a little bit of a comparison with Spartacus's, uh, Spartacus's uprising against Rome, though they never took Rome. They didn't, you know, they didn't know, they didn't have anything to replace that with. Uh, so from then on, uh, the revolution enters basically a protracted, a protracted decline. It was a civil war now for years between the conventionists uh, of Villa and Zapata and the constitutionalists of Carranza. Uh, but since, uh, since the, the revolutionary forces were divided geographically, uh, Carranza eventually was able to get things going. He controlled the more important economic center of the country and was eventually able to uh, uh, isolate them. Destroying the División del Norte with, with its mobility was the most important thing. Uh, the Zapatistas were more confined to their state. Uh, so they waged total war on the areas controlled by, by Villa. I mean, and by total war, I mean uh, starvation, mass hangings, mass executions, murder, destroying crops, destroying houses. I mean, just like, just really punishing the population, which was the, the base of support uh, for the revolution. A lot like, I mean, the pictures, it looks a lot like the white armies of the Russian Civil War just a few, a few years ago. Um, and after five years of death and destruction and famine and everything, I mean, the, the masses were exhausted. Um, and uh, Carranza in Obregón, were not only winning militarily, but they now had, you know, even part of the peasantry just wanted to go back to peace. The petty bourgeoisie wanted to go back to this peaceful, you know, commercial training, and the bourgeois, of course, backed them uh, from the beginning. So he started offering up some, con con some concessions uh, to the peasantry, offering them, you know, things to try to weaken the resolve of, uh, of, of the peasants. Now, <clears throat> they very clearly knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to develop the country on, on capitalist forms, whereas a lot of the peasants, really, they had this sort of utopian idea of returning to a golden age of free peasants, uh, you know, uh, sort of a mythical pre-conquest kind of period, and they couldn't understand the need uh, to, do, to move things forward instead of going uh, backwards, ultimately. So Carranza ends up uh, taking the presidency. Villa accuses Carranza of 
of uh, capitulating to the North Americans, to the to the gringos, to the Americans, uh, and he 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 gets sold out. Uh, as we'll talk in a little bit, he gets sold out by the Americans. They help uh, Obregón's armies defeat the División del Norte. And uh, long before Donald Trump said that he would make the Mexicans build a wall, Pancho Villa wanted to build a 500-meter-wide pit uh, across the border to keep the gringos out and uh, and to cut all all telegraph communications. Uh, obviously, we're internationalists, but we can understand uh, the sentiment. Um, so, in the end, the, the battle, uh, the División del Norte is destroyed. It's uh, killed, uh, you know, it's destroyed, and, and Villa basically has to go into guerrilla-type uh, conflict because of this. Uh, basically, the Americans allowed Obregón to use U.S. territory to transport troops to Villa's rear, which obviously then, you know, was a tactical, uh, you know, problem for him, and that's what defeated his army. So in anger, he invades the United States at Columbus, New Mexico in March of 1916, the first time since the War of 1812 that the U.S. had ever been invaded, and the last time... Uh, since, and they burnt down part of the town. They killed some people. That's a real poster. Wanted dead or alive. Pancho Villa. Um, and then the U.S. Army, they end up sending Black Jack Pershing, an American general, to, to try to track down Villa. Uh, and for a year, the U.S. Army chases Villa around northern Mexico, and they never even see him or his army once. I mean, they can't even, because the population obviously isn't going isn't gonna to support this uh, imperialist uh, uh, invasion. So this period from 1915 to 1920, you end up with the eventual defeat of, of Villa, the defeat of a mass workers' movement in 1916, which I'll talk about in a second, uh, the subjugation, finally, of the peasant uprisings all around the country, uh, the isolation of Zapata to Morelos, and eventually the murder of Zapata on April 10th, 1919. He's tricked. His murder, it's like a crime, it's like a thriller story. I mean, it's really incredible, uh, like sort of a, like a spy story of how he eventually gets trapped uh, and killed. And his body was displayed and, uh, you know, by the Hacendalos, the rich people celebrating. The poor people, of course, were, were in tears. <clears throat> but in the course of all this, of all this uh, chaos, the masses had smashed the old Porfirian state apparatus, its army, everything, including its, its, uh, its juridical basis, its constitution. They forcibly uprooted by force, literally, the haciendas uh, and the system of debt peonage, which had, had bonded so, much, so many of them. Uh, and of course, the bourgeois had to now figure out what they could put something together. They, did, they were working on getting their new bodies of armed men, but they also had to get a new legal basis, and they end up putting together what becomes the Mexican Constitution that, that is in place until this day of 1917. Uh, <clears throat> under the pressure of the masses, it, it's, it's actually much further to the left than, uh, than it would have been otherwise. Uh, on paper, at least, it's a pretty progressive uh, bourgeois democratic constitution uh, with protections for uh, the workers, with protections for the, for the peasants, but obviously we know in practice that that's, uh, that that's very different. Now, with Villa no longer an existential threat, Obregón, who was Carranza's main general, he retires from the military, he goes back to Sonora, his state of Sonora, and he raises a bunch of uh, money. He becomes a, a, a capitalist, basically, exporting things to Europe. Uh, you know, at the, you know during, at the end of World War I, there was a, there was a lot of money to be made <clears throat> 100 years ago, basically this week. Um, so uh, uh, Obregón assumed that he would be the next president. He would come out of, you know, civilian life to come back to the presidency. But Carranza ended up backing someone else. So another coup takes place. Obregón overthrows Carranza, tracks him down in Puebla, murders him. 
And now Obregón is the new, uh, the new leader. And he, but he was a very skilled Bonapartist. He, uh, he even used the language of Emiliano Zapata. He even held up Zapata as a hero and said that he was the victim of the, the traitor Carranza. And he said he was a hero. And he demagogically used that. He offered uh, you know, labor protections to labor and to the anarchists. He offered, he promised a peaceful return uh, to, to trade. Uh, and he even made a deal with the Casa Obrero Mundial uh, at some point, who actually even like like uh, organized uh, red battalions, workers' battalions, to fight against Pancho Villa, uh, to, to show you how confused they were as to what the, the you know what what the progressive side of this uh, struggle was. Um, he pacified the country um, between 1920 and 1924. So basically, we're at the end of the revolution now, uh, and he decides that he's going to uh, basically handpick his new successor. Uh, a guy named Calles, his last name Calles. Um, and then a newspaper interview in 1923, Pancho Villa, who had negotiated a, a deal with Obregón to retire, and he'd retired to, a, uh, to, a, to an hacienda, basically, in Chihuahua. <clears throat> he basically, for three years, he and his men kind of just hung out there. Uh, he he mentioned in an interview, well, nobody should forget old Pancho Villa because I can get 20,000 men under arms with a snap of my finger. And of course, that was a mortal threat uh, to the new regime, which was trying to consolidate itself. And on uh, July 20th, 1923, in Parral, Chihuahua, there's an ambush of, uh, of Pancho Villa, uh, who was shot driving his own car. Uh, they shot, I think, 150 bullets at him, and he was hit 39 times. Um, so they definitely did not want this guy around because he was a real threat because in the eyes of the masses, he represented the revolution. Millions of people were mourning him, not just for what he'd done personally, but for what he represented because for them, that really meant the end of the revolution. Now, a lot of people have called this uh, an unfinished or an in interrupted revolution. But even the basic bourgeois democratic tasks were left unfinished. For example, the land question, the question of the indigenous population. Uh, there's still, people are still being displaced. You still have, I mean, you end up with a Zapatista up, uprising in Chiapas in the south, in the indigenous areas, and, and back in 94, <clears throat> I think it was, uh, millions of people have been pushed over the last few decades. I mean, this process has continued up until today. Off their lands, they get forced into the big cities. They get forced to come to live here. They get forced to become the most exploited and oppressed workers in uh, with no rights in a, in a country like the United States. And although they had some brilliant victories, uh, defeat was you know, all, all but inevitable for these people, even though they empirically moved towards socialism in some ways in their actions, um, they, they, you know, they just didn't have that, 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 that social force behind them. They didn't link up with the urban working class. The working class was, was totally screwed because of its leadership. Um, whereas the bourgeois, they knew exactly what they wanted. Um, and if, if you see that, it, you know, I mean, even Villa himself, uh, to the end, had illusions in Madero. He had some illusions in, in liberalism because he wasn't given another another lead. Um, uh, in 1916, I mentioned there had been a big major strike in Mexico City, a workers' strike, uh, but, uh, but the workers' leaders, they basically capitulated very quickly. They were rounded up and executed, uh, and their workers' organization was destroyed, and you end up with the founding of a regional confederation of the Mexican workers, which is a top-down state-controlled uh, model for trade unionism, a sort of a Zubatov-type uh, uh, unionism, which to this day, the Mexican working class is still trying to 
get off their backs. It's a very particular kind of institutionalized state-run, uh, you know, the state is so connected with the trade unions. It's very, very, uh, very special and very problematic. Uh, and the Mexican commons, of course, have, uh, have explained a lot about that. And, and there's a lot going on in Mexico today, as we'll see. So the flood tide may have ebbed, but it did not go back to the old banks of the Porfirio Diaz uh, regime and the rule of the Hacendados. It raised millions of people to their feet, uh, and it, it created so many leaders, not just Villan Zapata, but other people like Manuel Palafox, who was a socialist Zapatista. He, he was a real socialist. You had people like General Felipe Angeles, an artillery officer who left the federal army and joined the Zapatistas. He had read Marx. He had read Kautsky. Uh, and yet other uh, socialist experiments, if you will, uh, you know, a socialist governor in Guerrero, uh, a socialist uh, governor in, uh, in Yucatan who actually wanted to set up a state-run uh, Henneken industry to, to edge out the, uh, the brutal exploitation of the Maya population. Uh, you know, real efforts were made to try to bring some of this about, but it wasn't connected, it wasn't generalized, there was no party, uh, and the working class didn't unite. Um, you also had some bizarre right-wing expressions. We talk about counter-revolution. You have in the aftermath of the revolution what's called the Cristero War, which is a sort of a fascist-inspired rebellion supported by the Catholic Church, which was completely against any kind of land reform uh, whatsoever. Uh, it was kind of a Girondin reaction, which, which, the, which the, 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 the liberal bourgeois also had to put this right-wing uh, uprising down. And so though the power of the, the landowners was shaken and a lot of the old landowners were pushed out, the, the big tracts of land still remained basically intact and they weren't really uh, tackled and, and, and broken up until the late 1930s under Cárdenas, Lázaro Cárdenas, uh, who of course is the president who allowed Leon Trotsky uh, to have asylum in Mexico. Now in 1910, when the revolution started, Mexico had a population of 15.2 million people. Uh, after a decade of revolution and counter-revolution, it had fallen to 14.3 million. So it had fallen by nearly a million people. Uh, they claim, uh, and obviously there's population growth still taking place, uh, at least a million were killed or exiled. But some people uh, say that as many as 2 million people were killed, and, and a lot of them civilians, and as many as a million were pushed out, most of them, into the United States. Um, the 1918-19 the uh, flu, the Spanish influenza, also hit right in the middle of this period, and it really hit the hardest, uh, the, the poorest areas as well. Uh, <clears throat> the Mexican economy only recovered, it only reached the, the 1910 level in, in the 1940s. It didn't recover for nearly 30 years. And this is an amazing statistic, I think. After centuries of brutalization of Mexico, the population of Mexico from 1519 was not equaled until 1940. It took from 1519 to 1940 to get back up to 20 million people uh, living in the country after uh, all the turmoil. So the ruling class tried to bury the memory of Villa and Zapata. They tried to especially co-opt Zapata and uh, demonize Villa, uh, but they remain powerful and inspiring figures to all kinds of people. People in Mexico, there's a lot of them to this day, the feeling that, you know, we lost that round, but but it ain't over yet, you know, we, we, you know, these are our historic leaders. They still have a lot. I mean, I'd say after Che Guevara, Zapata is probably one of the most, the, the most iconic uh, leader to come out of uh, Latin America. Uh, their, their memory lives on in the songs that we were listening to, the corridos. Uh, there's murals, there's literature, there's books, there's film. Uh, there's a book called Insurgent Mexico by John Reed. Uh, who wrote 10 Days That Shook the World, which is kind of an eyewitness account of, of some of his experiences. Uh, there's a movie called Viva Zapata. You heard of that? Directed by Elie Kazan, written by John Steinbeck, and starring Marlon Brando as Emiliano Zapata. 
which is just absolutely bizarre. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Anthony Quinn won an Oscar for, the, for this movie. And I saw some clips, and it is the most absurd thing ever. Um, but the fundamental problems remain. The fundamental uh, revolutionary tasks, uh, most of them still remain. And the aspirations of the masses remain. On the basis of this revolution, a powerful proletariat has developed in Mexico, and you now have the basis for a socialist, very clearly a successful socialist revolution in Mexico. Uh, the Mexican comrades have produced a lot of excellent material, especially little sort of vignette articles about different elements of, uh, of this. Uh, Comrade Allen wrote in uh, 2010 on the 100th anniversary a very good sort of summary article. There's a lot of other material out there as well. I'd be happy to recommend. There's, there's plenty of in English as well. Uh, and the US has its own obviously incredible history of revolution. We gotta learn from it, we gotta keep writing about it. But we, I think it's important for us to learn about the revolutionary experience of our comrades from the South, not least because there's millions of immigrants that come to this country with those same aspirations, with those traditions, with those memories, and the work among the Mexican population, the, the immigrant population in this country is gonna be increasingly important in the years ahead. And the class struggle between the NAFTA countries, or the no, the no longer NAFTA countries, the agreement, whatever they are now, uh, it, it's inextricably connected. The class struggle in Canada, in the United States, in Mexico. So comrades, we in the US, we have a particular debt to pay to the Mexican people, to the workers and peasants. Uh, US imperialism stole half of Mexico in the 1840s uh, and has treated it like its backyard since before the Communist Manifesto even came out. So comrades, let's learn from these processes. Let's learn and fight for the American Revolution, for the Socialist Federation of Americas. Viva Zapata, viva Villa, and viva la Revolución. Bella,